I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. First, they have to show you. That's how it works. Show me what? My true face. That's what these are for. I'm an actor, see? There's a face beneath this face. No! Let me! You have to see me! First I show you, then you take me with you! Hello, this is In The Cut, and I'm Jesse. I have Aaron here, and we're going to have a conversation about the 1990 film Nightbreed. You can visit the site I set up at inthecut.org and see all the ways that you can watch Nightbreed right now, and I recommend you do so, because our format here is not so much to review a movie as to kind of get under the hood. So if you visit our site at inthecut.org, you should be able to see all the ways you can watch the movie right now. So thanks for joining us, and let's talk about Nightbreed. Nightbreed. We've watched Nightbreed several times. <laughs> I watched the first half of Nightbreed before falling asleep at least three times. And <laughs> Doesn't speak real highly of Nightbreed. No. I, I mean, I think I'm still going to defend Nightbreed just because... Why? I don't know. Well, if you don't know why you're defending it, you're off to a bad start. <laughs> yep. Well, let's get right into it. Except, first we should have a word from our sponsor. Oh, okay. And since we don't have a sponsor, we'll just do some scratch-off lottery tickets again. So here's the scratch-off lottery tickets I've got. We have Jungle Jim, who's treated us well in the past. We have Cool Nines, your your favorite. And then uh, the third one I have is, because uh, we were recording this around Halloween, Spooky Loot. Spooky Loot? Oh, man. Yeah. It's a mm. black light reactive scratch-off lottery ticket. So maybe we can do awesome. uh, two of them up front, and then maybe we'll do one at the end. Your jungle animals are chihuahua, sheep, lion, sheep, sheep, crocodile. Hmm. That's three sheep. Three sheep. Is that uh, the amount I need? You only need three to win, and you've won one dollar. Well, Cool Nine sucked, and I won nothing. Sweet. 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 We're, so far, we've out of $2 we've spent on scratch-off lottery tickets, we've got $1 back, so we are funding the show to the tune of negative $1. Let's talk about Nightbreed. All right. Um, so I think it was uh, my decision to watch this movie. <laughs> you think some, it was uh, your decision. I'm going to go on record <laughs> as saying it's unambiguously was your drunken insistence that, <laughs> to watch this movie. Hmm. So I am going to defend Nightbreed in that it probably should have been a good movie. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And one of the first things I was thinking while I was watching this movie is that I tend to really like an ambitious failure more than like a boring success in, in movies yeah absolutely and and this was originally about twice the running time you know i mean it was clive barker's big budget movie he got to do and uh, the studio kind of took it away from him at some point and just basically said we're gonna just use the footage we have and the footage we're gonna use is the stuff that cost us money therefore all of the uh monsters having explosions in a graveyard and none of the uh the part where there's a plot or characters or anything 
Yeah, let's just get it right out on the table that the second almost half, at least the last third of this movie, is just fucking explosions in a graveyard, and it's so fucking boring to watch. Yeah, and it, because, I mean, it was very... And they actually just... Someone just found a work print and released... Uh, Four times as many explosions in graveyard. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, but I, I think that, you know, what they cut out was all the, you know, actual plot points. I mean, I, I, it really seems like there should have been a half hour to the movie before the movie started where... We knew who any of the characters were, and there was some sort of actual relationship between the psychiatrist and the dude. And I mean, also all the actors, except for maybe David Cronenberg and some of the monsters and Porcupine Tit Lady, uh, were awful. Um, I don't know that what what at thirty minutes you could have added to the beginning to make this movie better. Like I don't, I, I think if, if anything, I would cut from the beginning. Uh-huh. And maybe like fill out the middle with things, interesting things happening in some way. But the on my second viewing, I immediately like, I, I thought there's a scene about 20, 25 minutes into the movie where Cronenberg's uh, psychologist is sitting in his, you know, office alone. There's a bunch of knives and stuff on the table, but he's listening to a mini cassette of an interview with the lead. Do you remember this scene? Mm-hmm. And he's just the guy's describing the dreams, and Cronenberg's is, 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 uh, psychologist is just getting more and more frustrated, and, and he throws the thing, and that that's the shot I would have started the movie on. <laughs> and the knives would have maybe given too much away, even though it doesn't turn out to be a major rev, like end of movie reveal that he's the killer. They re, they it's a relief they don't drag that mystery out through the entire movie because it's <laughs> incredibly obvious from the get go. But if they wanted to preserve that little bit of a twist, they could have just left the knives off the table. But the psychologist listening to that micro cassette is such a—it's a really effective scene, and I think that it could have really kicked the kicked the events of the movie off in a nice way. Is it always the same dream then? I don't know. It's uh, sometimes it's it's like I'm uh, I don't know. It's it's like I'm underground I'm in Midian, a place full of monsters. I told you about. Are you buried alive? Uh, no, not alive. But you're conscious. Yeah, but not alive. I'm dead, but I'm, st- I'm still functioning. Death is the end, but... I'm not admitting I live forever. <laughs> so maybe death isn't the end, but Doc. <sighs> I think that Clive Barker has a real excellent and well-defined artistic vision just generally and and brings that to any project he works on but the role of a movie director is different than the role of an art director and and a movie director has to be more like a manager at a store or a company and he has to take responsibility for aspects of the movie that are that are not that that could be unsuccessful and kind of torpedo the success of the movie and it seems like Clive Barker he didn't he lost control of the final edit, as you were saying. He also lost control of the marketing around the movie, where he was really frustrated that it had been marketed as like a kind of a slasher horror film instead of mm-hmm. kind of a dark fantasy, which I think would be a fair way of putting what he was maybe trying to go for. Yeah, I think the acting it was was really really milk toast, and that could be a bad reflection on him as a director too. I think that. He, he he just kind of needed to own the movie more if he wanted it to be better 
or let a director direct it and he could just like Tim Burton did with uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, let a director direct it and then he could just kind of be the the real sort of secret director who really controlled the creative side of it but didn't have to crack the whip to get to get all the all the collaborators in line and on the same page. Yeah, but I mean he wasn't always he didn't always do a bad job as a director. I mean, uh, the first Hellraiser was fantastic. And then I think uh, after Nightbreed, he did uh, Candyman, which was also, you know, it wasn't a plus, but it, you know, it was, it was, it was solid. It, I mean, I think there's no question that Hellraiser was a success, but it was, I think, it was probably just a more intimate group who kind of went into the project with a with a more unified vision, and he didn't have to do as much. Oh, oh I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That, I mean, just the scale of things was uh, not workable. And I, and I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know the story of how it fell apart. You know, if it was just uh, went over budget or over time or studio politics or what. Right, and I don't, and I don't pretend to know either. But I think that, I think it's clear that it, that he agrees that he lost control over it. Oh yeah, and, but I mean, he very literally lost control. Like they, he wasn't the director anymore, and someone else finished the movie. Right. The other thing is the score. Yeah. The whole time I'm just like. Who is this asshole just trying to be Danny Elfman? And, and then at the end, it's like, oh, uh, because it was uh, Danny Elfman. It seemed like Danny Elfman just swept up a bunch of clippings from other movies that he never quite used. Yeah, I think he really made... haphazardly threw them in. Like, not even, like, he wasn't even trying to match the tones of the scenes he was scoring. Yeah, I, I mean, my guess is that he wasn't actually doing the scoring, that he composed some huh. music, and because, I mean, it just seems so badly yeah chosen just these because uh, he's I mean he seems like he's a good choice for that movie you know his, he could totally get that that tone that they were trying to get Danny Elfman he has a little bit of like Candyland you know whimsy in everything he does but this was like extreme <laughs> goofy Candyland whimsy stuff yeah, yeah and I, I mean Danny Elfman really on the ball could have done a much better job of course but yeah, Even at I his best, I don't got... know that he would have taken this movie into a less silly direction, which is what I think it really needed. I, I don't think you really got to have any kind of alternative scoring doing a studio movie in, what was it, 93? Or, you know, you just you just got whichever one of those guys you could afford. Yeah, Danny Elfman must have such an interesting life because he's like, he is so the go-to for so many movies. Like him and Harry Gregson Williams and like one or two other people. It's like the way that every movie trailer has the same announcer. <laughs> like, how shitty it must be to not to be have that job, but not be that one guy who gets every single gig in the entire universe. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just, I mean, I'm just so tired of the orchestral score. Um, you know, it's just always, it's you know, just whenever there's any kind of alternative scoring, like I guess only. Jim Jarmusch movies. Yeah. Someone else must do them, but you know, it's just like, whoa, it's a different kind of music. I guess there's the post rock score now. Yeah, it's kind of the post rock needle drop is a new <laughs> is a new thing. But yeah, uh, awful, awful, awful scoring, awful editing, awful acting. <laughs> um, and this is your defense. Yeah, <laughs> I may have I may have forgot that I'm defending something I did. Uh, kind of pick up on what that i don't know if it's a real thing or not but i i felt like there was a real kind of heavy subtext like it felt like almost like a you know referencing like the uh stonewall uprising or uh 
you know, the kind of a real gay subtext through the whole thing, and then this. Can you help me with the Stonewall Uprising part? I'm not. I it, it it's not coming to mind. I feel really culturally idiotic. But... Um, Stonewall was. Um, God, I can't even. Late sixties, early seventies. You know, when the police were still uh, raiding gay clubs, there was kind of a uh, kind of super seedy gay club in uh, in New York that you know was, you know always got raided. And one time, you know, it got raided, and uh, everyone fought back. Huh. Um, everyone on the street kind of joined in and they ended up with you know the cops kind of barricaded in and couldn't get out and it was and it was very much like it wasn't you know the respectable gay community it was the it was you know the street kids and the you know overly flamboyant transvestites and the uh so it was definitely a kind of freak power huh. and it and it really kicked off the gay rights movement in a huge way i could totally see parallels there then and you know and then they're always is a pretty heavy gay subtext to uh, Clive Barker's stuff. Hmm. And I could totally, yeah, just, you know, Midian is like, you know, the small town gay bar. Right. To be able to fly, to be smoke, or a wolf, to know the night and live in it forever, that's not so bad. You call us monsters, but when you dream, you dream of flying and changing and living without death. You envy us. And what do you envy? We destroy. The people in Midian, the, or rather, the, I guess, the creatures, the Nightbreed themselves, had to be had had such an onus of interestingness on them where they 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 i think they just had to be such interesting creatures and and have such interesting personalities to make the movie work it's so much was kind of loaded on that and i was kind of mixed on that what did you think of the of the of the leads the lead kind of costumed characters um, the, the night breeds i in terms of the actual monster effects i i give it an a for awesome monsters I thought it was such a mixed bag. Like, for example, the guy, the guy who he runs into earlier in the hospital, who who kind of cuts part of his head flesh off, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then sort of has to go through the rest of the movie with part of his head flesh, flesh missing, was like one of the best practical effects I've seen in a movie. I think of, yeah, of, that, of the era, especially. That was an image that had totally stuck with me from watching it at fourteen. And he felt he he just felt liberated after he did it, mm -hmm. and he just like was so easygoing after that. <laughs> He, he becomes my hero of the movie by far, especially later on where he throws a cowboy hat on and stages a jailbreak. <laughs> Most of the guys, though, I just... It, it was uneven because, for a couple reasons, but partly because some of them were so elaborate and some of them were so just like a guy with a nose ring or something. <laughs> and uh, and there was just a real imbalance there. Like, you know, this, this full-body, spiky, porcupine-quilled woman's costume and then something just super super flimsy next to it <laughs> and also because it was there seemed to be some real inconsistency where in terms of some of them it seemed like they were some kind of parallel half human species that maybe in the flashback you realize had been like a parallel species to humankind until they were genocidally killed and some of them seemed like they're dead people who came back to life like the guy is missing part of his skull and some of them were just kind of like just magic guys who had magic powers. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think they were supposed to be one thing. No, but there, there, it was such a grab bag of like, they could all be different things that were different races 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's or, what uh, they were supposed to be. I think that you know they were kind of all. Well, then what was what was the hero, or what was the guy who cut part of his head off, or what was the? I mean, what about the ones that weren't? <laughs> <laughs> well, the I mean, the hero was he was turned by the other guy who had some sort of a werewolf bite or whatever. Uh huh. I don't know. I mean, you definitely get the sense that there, you know, there was stories to all of the characters that we didn't see in that. I other... guess my problem was that I didn't. They just seem like here's a bunch of ideas and just throwing all of them at the wall with with no thought given to. Well, maybe that fits in the movie and that one doesn't. It just seemed like they just kind of wanted everything to fit in the movie. I mean, you know, it's based on a novel and. uh if there's one thing, I don't know if you ever read any Clyde Barker. No, I have not. I rarely, I've started quite a few. <laughs> Actually, why I was er, earlier saying, um, you know, how I thought there should be more at the beginning. That's that's always the fun part of his novels for me is the beginning where it's the, you know, discovering whatever magical, terrible land and uh, where there's still some real life going on. And I think he blends blends the real life and the fantasy very well and uh but the the other thing that he does, you know, fantastically, like probably better than anyone else, is to really make uh, crazy supernatural monsters into good uh, point of view characters. There was a lot of characters in the movie too that weren't the leads. I mean, there was definitely maybe a dozen, like some between eight and twelve, probably main night breed characters. And then there, about halfway through the movie, the lead character's girlfriend gets to kind of go and tour the gallery like behind the veil like the whole she gets the whole self-guided tour of all these different creatures which was the funnest part of the movie and kind of reminded me of cabin in the woods yeah yeah where you get to just go and see all these different like here's where we really get to just shovel everything in and and have creatures that that we can we can come up with a fantastic costume, but there's no way for the person to move around in it. Mm-hmm. But we'll just put them in a room, or or you know something we can do that looks great from one side or something. We can just put it in there. It'll be in this kind of uh, it's almost like a slideshow of these fantastic practical uh, costume effects. Yeah, and and I'm and really makeup and stuff. Curious about you know the a lot of that was you know if there was supposed to be more to a lot of that. Hmm. You know, as they were cutting down the movie, they're like, well, we we built these props. <laughs> right. These costumes are going in. So we'll just put it in for a second. It definitely feels like with without any regard for the flow of the movie, they definitely were like, the decision for what scenes to keep was based entirely on how much they cost. Huh. Um, I could see that, yeah. But the other thing is that so many of those that even were completely practical for a cost for a actor to wear were so much better than so many of the lead characters <laughs> that I just wish we had seen those guys' stories more. And the hero's power slash costume was by far the shittiest. Like by far. Yeah. Why was his so shitty? It made me just hate him even more. <laughs> He was pretty, I mean, he's a pretty douchey hero, I, I, I really want to say. Like, he he's, looks totally normal 90% of the time, but then when he gets really pissed, he gets, like, face tattoos and, and his eyes turn red. And somehow, his girlfriend manages to love him in spite of <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I, it just didn't, it, I didn't buy that that was some heroic thing on her part, obviously, being kind of sarcastic here. She did see past the mullet, though. 
Yeah. It was a it was a bad mullet. And the other costume I really liked was the mask that our that our slasher kind of actual villain psychologist guy wore. Yeah, he was he was good. Um, I mean, he didn't necessarily do a good acting job. I remember him doing a really amazing acting job. He was, I mean, he was understated. I think he he recognized the limitations of his <laughs> of his acting ability. But I remember seeing that movie and finding that character like really terrifying in a way that other you know slasher movie villains weren't. Like, because he wasn't like like fun murder. He was like going and murdering families, and it was terrible. Yeah, I hadn't seen a lot of that. Is he necessary to the movie thematically? I would I would say because the movie as it stands, it seems like his his role kind of just peters out, and there's a little bit at the very end that just doesn't really. Yeah, um, but maybe that it, maybe he was he was a bigger part of kind of the flow of the movie earlier. Right. And it was also, you know, it was planned as a trilogy. Hmm. And I don't know if it was all, if the it was a trilogy of novels or, I don't really know what it was based on, or if it was one novel that they were breaking up into a trilogy of movies. My other question about that guy is that why did he sew buttons onto the eyes of the thing? Because how, how does he see? Uh, spookiness. He could have been a pretty interesting character if we had understood him a little bit better, maybe. I think that there's an aspect of where he both fears and wants to destroy the crazy creatures of the night, but also that he, like, admires and seeks to emulate them. Yeah, that's... I I agree with that assessment. But that's kind of part of what I feel like, you know, should have been that extra 30 minutes of movie in the beginning. Hmm. And, And probably was, was kind of, you know, a lot of that guy's who he was and why he was because i don't think we really got any of that really in the movie he was just like kind of murdery i think we got some the scene i mentioned earlier with uh, him listening to the recording and becoming frustrated he he just was jealous of that world in a way but then also is the one leading the police and the kind of the bad kind of rednecky guys to to tear down their world and that all works very well with the uh Subtext. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine it was even uh, even uh, Hoover's running the FBI at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a that's a layer that I never would have noticed had you not pointed it out for sure. But yeah, I mean, the kind of yeah that yeah self hating and uh, yeah, you know, I think he's more important in the movie than the hero is by far. I'm and um, I would bet that uh in the novel uh he got like twice as many chapters huh. uh because i mean really that is what clive barker does is he makes the has the great monstrous villain and uh writes writes a good amount from their point of view right yeah yeah i think that it could have been a really interesting movie if if he was just almost or or maybe just barely a sympathetic character yeah and um i mean i don't i don't think he even needed to be sympathetic but just to have uh you know his motivation laid out a little better and uh yeah just developed so, yeah um getting along to the end of the movie um what's i think kind of a joseph campbell e fulfillment of a prophecy you know the one returns in a real like luke skywalker or neo from the matrix or just you know 
so many thousands of movies use this kind of format where the hero is is revealed to have been prophesized to have kind of come and and saved their civilization or their sub civilization their 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 group he's he's roundly revered by everybody but i don't get why at all from what i saw all he did was, did was bring a bunch of nightmarish shit to their door wreck their whole lives and then barely save most of them from it i i mean where what if i was in that cabal of guys i would have hated i would have rude the day <laughs> that fucking guy showed up yeah religion <laughs> I mean, did did he do did he do anything to actually save them? Was he was there some Moses like aspect to him? I mean, my guess is that's just another one of those things that was in the hour and a half of movie that got cut out. The militia that kind of comes to crash Midian and 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 kill everyone is uh, is just kind of like cartoonishly bad guys, like <laughs> stormtrooper, like we drunk. are humans, and we are the real monster. <laughs> And the monsters... I think there were probably at least eight lines of dialogue that were just an ironic comment on humans are the real monsters. Right. And the monsters were, uh, almost without exception, unambiguously the good guys. Yeah, that's... Uh... That it just made it really boring. My big takeaway from it was that it's not any fun to root for the bad guys unless they're bad guys. <laughs> and I felt deprived of the joy of, I mean, the part of the reason that, uh, that Pinhead is such a, you know, compelling and, and memorable character is that he's like unambiguously villainous and, uh, he kind of becomes more like the badass running the show as the, sh as the movies go on. And it becomes more and more obvious that the audiences are coming to, to, to kind of root for Pinhead and, and not to root for the humans he's ripping apart and it's reflected well, I, I, in the I mean, writing and the and how the later movies are made but in the earlier ones especially it's that it's he's he's a really amazing and compelling character but he's a bad guy you know the monsters in in nightbreed the nightbreed are just like muppets like level you know <laughs> they're so not bad guys that uh, it's not fun to root for them lost boys i think is probably the best example of making it fun to root for the bad guys mm -hmm. and something i think they they if they weren't going to do it they shouldn't have tried in this yeah I, yeah i felt like there was a, a very strong opportunity for that but if you had made you know the monsters a little monstrous uh you get a little more of a complicated plot and that's and that kind of makes the psychologist the slasher psychologist the the only eric character that was really that interesting to follow yeah because um... it certainly wasn't the hero <laughs> In the 1950s, a really common villain was the hypnotist, mm -hmm. uh, an evil hypnotist. And it was this idea that that there's a new kind of quasi-science in which these people had, had sw held sway over other people's minds without their complete consent necessarily. And, and that people kind of wanted to laugh at it, but they also maybe were a little bit afraid of the possibilities there. And it was a it was a real real common trope in the fifties the the evil hypnotist. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even even like when we were kids, that was that was still there. I mean, that was still a kind of sure. You know, may have been like kind of relegated to cartoons and. Uh, and I think in the eighties and yeah, in the cartoons especially, the hypnotist is still was still a big trope. But in the eighties and nineties, I, I I saw uh I saw that shift really over to psychologists. And we mentioned this in the RoboCop 2 when we were talking about RoboCop 2, kind mm -hmm. of the 
psychologist who she just wanted to put a criminal's brain in, you know, the evil ro- <laughs> into the giant murder robot because she's a psychologist and she thinks bad things are good. And the psychologist is is our real villain in this one too. I think that that was kind of an interesting, I thought, evolution. And there's a real commonality in the kind of the cultural, the ingrained cultural kind of laughing but subtle distrust of of people who play around with the mind. I, I think in, in media we're pretty over the distrust of the psychiatrist. I'm just wondering if we have a modern equivalent now. Yeah, I was I was just trying to think of. Uh, I wonder of if maybe if our fear of uh, Muslim church is 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 a fear of of the, um, of the like, yeah maybe just religion in general pretty much if you ever see like a priest in a movie he's sinister anymore that's kind of true isn't it yeah that's that's something that yeah, I mean, yeah there was probably you know decades of movies where you would you wouldn't dare put a sinister priest yeah and um i can't i mean has there been like a popular tv show i mean i don't I don't know if I watch a lot of the popular TV shows that had like a uh, sympathetic, you know, evangelical Christian. I mean, has there been a movie with a sympathetic evangelical Christian? And reflected real aggressively culturally in in the backlash against like Scientology. Oh yeah, and, uh, uh, I wonder if Scientology would be. I mean, if Scientology wasn't just completely loony on its face, I wonder if it would still <laughs> just wouldn't be able to get a toehold because uh, we the the pendulum is kind of swinging back. Uh, against uh, this kind of herd mentality that religion can sometimes represent. Oh, yeah. And, um, like, uh, Mormonism right now. I mean, hmm. a pretty ugly sentiment there. <laughs> yeah. So the the, uh, the kind of religious-style leader of the night breed, the, the robed, uh, long-haired, you know, wizened guy who I, mm-hmm. had those weird things on his cheeks that in one terrible shot were sort of revealed to be shittily painted on eyeballs on his cheeks did you catch that <laughs> i was instantly sure a hundred percent sure that it was the same guy who played sprint splinter in teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> the voice and the mannerisms were you correct did you look and, it up are, are so fucking dead um on. i totally and see that next time you rewatch nightbreed you should and you should beard. look for that specifically because i'm positive i'm right except i'm not because I looked it up, uh, but it's so dead uh, on. It's so fucking dead on. Um, I, w- I wonder if they're both pulling from a you know an earlier character or at least an earlier trope that was. Uh, yeah, maybe like a, of kind of the the old master in kung fu movies or something that they're both similarly drawing mm-hmm. on the the you know long white bearded guy who seems to just know all the answers of the universe. But it was actually, it was actually the guy who played the leader, and, I, and I'm sorry that I forget his name in this movie, but the, that that uh, that kind of uh, religious leader of the Nightbreed was played by Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead in the Hellraiser movies. Uh-huh. And the guy who played Splinter was uh, Kevin Clash, who plays Elmo. <laughs> and I may be the first person in history to mistake Pinhead for Elmo. You made an oath to obey the law. Yes. I love her. But she's a natural. She can't love you. Not now. I don't care. At the beginning, I kind of mentioned that that I really, that I like an ambitious failure a lot more than I like a boring success. Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, an, an unsurprising, I should say, success. Um, But I'm not sure if Nightbreed was as ambitious as it could have been. And... And it's and not to fault Clive Barker himself. I mean, it's really easy to make 
a movie about one person who made the movie, even though obviously there's, you know, thousands or at least hundreds of people who are responsible for making it what it is. It's so easy to, to kind of uh, anthropomorphize the movie and just assign it to the name of the person responsible that we believe is responsible for it. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, I think it I was... I don't want to completely blame Clive Barker for the lack of success here, but... um. And I, and obviously he would, it's not the movie he was trying to make either, but it, it really, especially with the, the ridiculous, overblown, tedious ending, it just seemed like it, it never rose to the challenge of, of taking a lot of imagination and trying to get a big movie made, a big imaginative movie made and tackle some weird themes. I mean, I think it, uh. You know, it maybe was a movie that failed through overambition, but uh, in the end, we didn't get to see any of that ambition. I mean, because it was literally just, you know, not in the movie. Right. I I am interested. I think it, when when I get a chance to download the whole movie, it's not downloadable yet. They're actually doing a run of it in theaters. Hmm. Um, but I would be interested in seeing the whole thing and kind of trying to get an idea of what the film was like i don't think it's very finished like it's all work print right um and like you know unscored and they haven't done the fully work or anything have you ever had an experience where you watched a different cut of a movie and had a really different response to it either much better or man the director's cut of uh donnie darko made that movie awful (laughs) did you ever see that i saw the original many times but never the director's cut yeah the director's cut is like yeah, it wasn't a mysterious thing that happened. It was some kind of robot from space. Huh. Well, I like robots from space. Maybe I'd like it. <laughs> I know that Roger Ebert had a had a very public feud with uh, Vincent Gallo. Is that how you say his name? Is that the director? I don't. Oh, right of of Buffalo '66 and Brown Bunny, director and star oh, of. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of the of the print he saw Brown Bunny or the cut he saw Brown Bunny, he just hated and panned and there was a huge public back and forth between the two of them after which eventually the final cut was shown to roger ebert and he liked it a lot better Mm -hmm. i don't i i mean that shows a kind of a strength of character i'm not sure i have i i I feel like the whole idea would be so poisoned (laughs) after i saw a a movie i despised a different cut of it i even if it was great which i have a hard time believing would be the case with Nightbreed. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot easier to start hating something you like than to start liking something you hated. Absolutely. It absolutely is. It's what I do best. <laughs> well, so I don't want to um, completely write off uh, a different cut of Nightbreed, but I, I admit I'm, I'm struggling to come up with what would make that movie, what would infuse that movie with the kind of the interestingness that I, that I think it's lacking. No, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a failure all around, but... Uh... Maybe you get that uh, a sense of what the ambition was. Huh. Maybe. We still have a Hellraiser. We're still good. It's time for our second sponsor break. I think. All right. This our sponsor uh, is Spooky Loot. The $2 Oregon Lottery scratch-off ticket that I bought at the store when I was buying beer. So let's get some spooky loot. Big loser. 
This is a, this is probably the dumbest premise for one I've seen so far. I like the Halloween theme, but you scratch it off and there's just a bunch of numbers. And if one of them is 13, you get that prize. That doesn't seem exciting. So it's just like 14, 9, 18, 5. How oh, fuck it. <laughs> It's not like trying to match a hippopotamus. Well, when you're trying to match three, it's like you're you you, you can get two of one or two of you can get closer or not. It's just like this is of all the scratch off lottery tickets I've done, this is probably the one that's closest to scratch off below. If it says yes, you win. If it says no, you lose. Hurry! I might have to get might have to get some better sponsors than this at some point, or maybe I just need to be buying more lottery tickets. You increase your odds by buying more. Did you know that? That's a statistical fact. Oh. Yeah. All right. If you bought every lottery ticket, you'd be guaranteed to win. Fact. Like you got a system. Yeah. <laughs> Next time we do a movie, uh, I think one of the ones we talked about doing, one of the ones we talked about doing was Drive. Uh, yes. Do you want to do Drive next? Yeah, I, I would totally be into doing Drive. What's your memory of Drive like? My memory of Drive was um, I was super cranky, uh-huh. and uh, I watched the movie Drive, and it made me angry at it. And I don't think it necessarily deserved it, but I was just extra irritated at that movie. I felt I just felt like it kept cheating. Kept cheating. Uh huh. I came away. It's one of those movies that came. One of the few movies I came away from feeling really conflicted that I felt strongly kind of both ways and I wasn't entirely sure and one that uh, on further kind of reflection I think I really did like hmm. yeah I mean it was, it was you know stylistically great in a lot of ways and I, I mean I definitely get, didn't give it a fair shake the first time so I you know I'll, I'll watch it again and see but I definitely felt like uh, that character was just kind of a you know it, it was kind of a cheat I feel like it was, you know, writing the mysterious character without... I, I, I felt like the There's screenwriter no, didn't... Th- that, they, that they just kind of let, left him as a hollow kind of template without ever right. doing the work to make him... Um, well, I just felt like whenever he was sitting there staring and you're supposed to wonder what he's thinking, the direction was just stare so that they wonder what you're thinking. I don't feel like the screenwriter had a sense of who that character actually was. And maybe that was kind of the point. Yeah, this is going to be... This is what I think we should go into this movie thinking about, because I think that's the most interesting crux of the movie. Mm -hmm. If it is the point, I'm irritated by it. And if it isn't the point, I'm irritated (laughs) by it. So here's here's something to maybe consider when you watch it. And uh, then this is going to be a, a small spoiler, maybe for the movie. Watch it. Consider this possible interpretation, and this isn't one that I'm married to, but I think is is one that 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 helped me revisit the movie in my mind. The movie leaves him really blank, like a in a, in a kind of a western cowboy, you know, mystery hero type of way for most of the movie. And we find ourselves feeling, starting to fill some of that in, but starting to also realize that we're not really getting any purchase with the, with the character as we try to understand him in that way. Because usually the movie, as we start to do that, starts to give something back and confirm 
you know, he that he sort of has a heart of gold. And we keep starting to try and give him the benefit of the doubt because we want to like him, but we keep kind of coming up. We're, we're like one side of Velcro where he's the other, supposed to be the other side, but there's nothing there. And so we're not latching on to him. And then about two thirds of the way through the movie, we've suddenly realized that he's just like a psychopath. <laughs> like he's a know. like he's an antisocial like kind of damaged like monster like he's a bad person yeah and i don't know i mean maybe that's a great moment so maybe that's one interesting way of looking at it it'd be interested to know if if that perspective holds up when i rewatch it and uh and if it ends up being something that that changes your perspective on it at all yeah yeah i mean i i, I definitely think there's a a lot a lot to rewatch and the other movie that I might want to do in the future is uh, This Is England. Say the name again? I didn't even hear you. Uh, this Is England. Different Penguins? Uh, England. This Is England. Like the country. Uh-huh. This Is England. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Because it's a very, very good movie. Okay. And I don't think we've ever talked to, just talked about a really good movie. We just talked about a really good movie. Well. Well, you didn't yeah. like Nightbreed? <laughs> well, thanks for doing this with me, Aaron. We it, it took a lot of work to get this one arranged. Our, our timing wasn't quite lining <laughs> up, and we end up do, pulling it off when we're both sick and everything. But I'm really glad that we got to talk about it, and I think we came up with uh, with some new stuff I hadn't looked at before. All right, so if you watch the 2011 film Drive, you can come on back next week and have another chat with us about that movie. As always, I'll have collected whatever ways I can uh, for you to watch that movie between now and then online, and you can see all those ways by visiting us at inthecut.org, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Night, night, sweetheart. 